Today we are starting a new series in the book of Philippians that we're probably going to be in until nearly the end of the year. And this book, Philippians, is a short, punchy, four-chapter book in the New Testament, which probably just takes up about three pages in your Bibles. And it is full of some of the most well-known and well-loved and oft-quoted scriptures in the whole of the Bible, which has made this many people's favorite book of the Bible. Now, I know this year we've spent a bunch of time in John 15 and Galatians 5, really going deep into some of those passages or verses. And what we're going to do is we're going to spend the next two and a half months or so really just working through the whole book of Philippians from beginning to end, which I'm really excited to do. And I want to ask you to join us over the next few months in reading through the book of Philippians, not just once, but again and again, like really get into it, slowly read it through, pray, prayerfully read it through, maybe get a commentary or work through it in a study Bible, discuss it with friends, meditate on it, memorize some of these verses. And I trust that God is going to plant this deep inside of our hearts. And I think one of the reasons this is so important is because for us as Christians, the Bible is our authority. You know, we believe that the Bible is the inspired, authoritative word of God given to us as a gift. And we want to humbly and prayerfully read through God's word and understand it and apply it to our lives and obey it uh, everywhere we go and in everything we do. So with that in mind, let's get into Philippians 1 verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I'm sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Indeed, it is right for me to think this way about all of you because I have you in my heart and you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, as we read this book, uh, we see that it's not actually a book, it's a letter written by Paul the Apostle to the whole church in Philippi, not just to one individual, but to the overseers and deacons, the leaders in the church, and to the saints or the members, to all the members of the church in Philippi. And I'm not going to do this the whole way through, but I do just want to zoom in on one word there and just talk about that for a second before we continue, because that word saint there is so interesting. And I want to say, if you're watching this today and you are a Christian, then the Bible calls you a saint. And that could be a bit of a mind shift for you. I know it has been for me over the years. But, but what this is saying here is that it's not just the really spiritual, accomplished Christians who've done a lot for God that are called saints. But no, if, if you are in Christ, if you're a Christian, if you've been born again, uh, then what this says is even if you don't feel like a very good person, even if you haven't had a very good week, if you know that you've done something you shouldn't have done recently, even then when God looks at you in Christ, he sees you and he calls you a saint. When God looks at you this morning, he doesn't go, oh, grand, gross, like, ah, oh, that guy's giving me so many problems. He looks at me and he looks at you this morning and he sees holy, pure, righteous, 
clean. He sees me as a saint, not as a sinner. Now, I don't know about you if you identify more as a sinner or as a saint, but when God looks at you, he sees a saint. When God speaks of you, he speaks of a saint. And that's really important for our minds to shift in this way. Because actually a lot of Christian living is speaking to ourselves, not listening to ourselves and leading ourselves. And as we follow Jesus and grow in the faith, a lot of what it means to be a Christian is to believe the truth that God says about us and to learn to live into who we already are in Jesus. So that's what's going on. You are a saint this morning. I hope that encourages you. But getting back into the book of Philippians and the story of what's going on here, Paul the Apostle is the man who planted or started this church in Philippi about 10 to 12 years before we get this letter. And Philippi is in modern day Greece. It's a European city and this church would have been the first church planted on European soil. So this is kind of a big moment in history. In 42 BC, so let me give you a short history lesson, Philippi became famous as the place where Mark Anthony and Octavian defeated Brutus and Cassius, who were kind of the opponents and assassins of Julius Caesar. And after that defeat or victory, they settled a number of their veteran or retired soldiers there and established Philippi as a Roman colony, which is a big deal. You know, Philippi was given the highest privilege possible uh, for a Roman provincial municipality, the Ius Italicum, which meant that it was governed by Roman law. So the citizens of Philippi, in other words, citizen and colony are going to become really important as we go through this letter. But the citizens of Philippi were Roman citizens. It's like having the best possible passport. They could go wherever they wanted and do what they wanted. But this place, Philippi, was modeled on the mother city of Rome. Uh, Their city was laid out in the same patterns that Rome was laid out. And they had similar architecture and style on the streets and in the layout of everything. On top of that, their coins had Roman inscriptions on them. The people dressed like Roman citizens and they spoke Latin. Basically, Philippi was Rome Jr. And the Philippians were very patriotic and loyal to Caesar and to Rome, which again is going to be a big theme that comes up in this letter. Philippi, if you can imagine it, is kind of a regional hub, a bit like Durban. You know, Durban is this port city, a hub for southern Africa and also for trade and commerce. Philippi was like that. And on top of it, it had amazing agricultural land. It had a lot of gold. And it was on this path called the Ignatian Way that was a significant Roman commercial road. So you can understand how Philippi would have been a significant and strategic place for church planting in the Roman Empire. But now let's do a bit of a flashback. I don't know if any of you guys watched The Highlander back in the day. It was my favorite series when I was a teenager. But whenever The Highlander bumped into one of his old friends that he'd known for hundreds of years, I don't want to spoil the plot for you, he'd have these flashbacks to when they met and to their relationship and their story until present day. And one of the benefits we've got as we study the book of Philippians is that we can actually read and have this flashback of how this church was planted in Acts chapter 16. And I really want to go back and start the series in Acts 16 because as we get into the letter and to everything Paul's going to say, I want us to think of the church in Philippi as real people in a real place. You know, these are people who met Jesus, who turned from their sins, whose lives changed as they began to follow him and to live for him, and who made decisions as part of this new community of the Philippian church uh, to see the mission of God extend, just like we've done. You know, some of you have met Jesus in Durban, in Harbour City, or you've grown in your faith as part of our church community, and you are living on mission together with us. That's what's going on in this letter. So let's go back to Acts 16 and look at the planting of this church. Acts 16, 6. 
they, Paul, Silas, Timothy, and their team, went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. They'd been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. When they came to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. Now, reading this passage, it sounds a lot to me like what we've experienced in 2020. We see this team trying to make plans and trying to go forward and to do what they want to do and what they need to do. But their plans keep getting messed up. You know, their plans keep having to change and adjust. But what's so unique about this is it's the Holy Spirit that forbids them and the Spirit of Jesus that doesn't allow them to do the things that they want to do, which is kind of crazy, you know. They are planning to go to Asia with the gospel. They're, they may be learning the language or the culture. They're, they're getting ready for the people, praying up for this mission. And then God forbids them and, and doesn't allow them. He stops them from doing what they have in mind. Not because they're bad plans. I mean, they're going to preach the gospel, make disciples, plant churches, do what they do. But instead, God is leading them somewhere else. Uh, in fact, this church in Philippi is only planted because their plans were messed up and because God redirected them from going to Asia to going to Europe with the gospel. Now, that should encourage some of us at the moment where we're not sure what's going on in our lives and what's going on in 2020, that God is at work in the details of some of these disruptions and frustrations. But we don't exactly know how God stopped them here. Uh, you know, it doesn't give us the details of that, but probably that was some kind of internal check. The Holy Spirit holding them back and stopping them from doing what they wanted to do and going where they wanted to go. And we see in verse 9 that during the night, Paul had a vision in which a Macedonian man was standing and pleading with him, cross over to Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision, we immediately made effort to set out for Macedonia concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So they go in response to this vision. Obviously, you know, the Lord has frustrated their plans here. They haven't been able to do what they wanted to do. But now a vision has appeared. He's shown them where he wants them to go and what he wants them to do. And they respond to the Spirit's calling. Now, Paul's strategy in any new city, town or village was to first go to the synagogue and to preach about Jesus there, which made sense, you know. There was a place where there were Jewish people who were waiting for the Messiah to be revealed, who were waiting for the fulfillment of scriptures and for the kingdom of God to come. And he would go and tell them that Messiah is here. Jesus is here. He is the one you've been waiting for. And then he'd go to the Gentiles or the non-Jewish people and preach about Jesus to them too. But this city in Philippi didn't have a synagogue. And interestingly, you needed 10 Jewish men to start a synagogue in a city, which means that here in Philippi, there weren't 10 Old Testament uh, studying Jewish faith practicing men uh, to form a synagogue. And this was a very spiritual city, but unlike Jerusalem, it wasn't a very Jewish city. So Paul goes outside of the city on the Sabbath day by this river, and he finds a bunch of women who are reading the Hebrew scriptures and are praying. And one of them is named Lydia. We read this. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the city gate by the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women gathered there. A God-fearing woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, was listening. So as you hear about Lydia, I want you to have in mind a successful wealthy, strong businesswoman who was involved in the fashion industry. And today she would be flying to New York Fashion Week, Paris Fashion Week, London, Milan, Tokyo, wherever, to be by the runway to sell her clothes, to do all of that. But here she is sitting by the river on the Sabbath, studying the scriptures, wanting to know more about God. And it says, the Lord opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying. And after she and her household were baptized, she urged us, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, 
come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. So how does Paul share the gospel with Lydia, this wealthy, successful businesswoman? Well, it's at a Bible study or prayer meeting. He opens the scriptures, he teaches, he points her to Jesus, and her heart is opened to respond. Now, what strikes me here is she's a moral person. She's a good woman. She's a God-fearer. She's interested. We might call her a seeker today. But what's really important for us to see is that moral people also need to hear and respond to the gospel. It's not just the immoral or the bad people, the people who do the bad things. It's the good people who do the good things. All people need to hear the gospel and respond to Jesus because we aren't saved by what we do and we aren't saved by our goodness. We're saved by Jesus and by what he has done for us. And when Paul shares this message, Lydia's heart is opened supernaturally and she responds to Jesus. And I think that should strike us. Sharing the gospel isn't just about technique. It's not just about saying the right thing in the right way to the right person at the right time, and then they will get saved. No, 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 no. What we see here is that this is a supernatural thing done by the power of God. So our job, Harbor City, is to share about Jesus lovingly with people. But God's job is to open people's hearts to respond to him. And that's how things get going in Philippi. From there in Acts 16, we see two more encounters. Paul also shares the gospel with a demon-possessed or demon-oppressed fortune-telling slave girl and with a hardened PTSD Roman uh, prison warden who would have been in war for years and years and who had seen stuff. He'd lived, he'd experienced a lot. And both of them come to follow Jesus too. So this new community of believers in Philippi is starting to take shape and it's made up of very colorful and very interesting people. And I want to show you with this very impressive uh, table that I've made, kind of the differences between them. For instance, Lydia is of Asian ethnicity. The slave girl is Greek. The jailer is Roman. You know, Lydia is wealthy. The slave girl is so poor she doesn't own anything. She's a slave. And the jailer is probably middle class and blue collar. In terms of spirituality, Lydia is interested. She's a seeker. She's a God-fearer. We don't know the slave girl's spiritual background, but she is tormented by evil spirits or demons. And the jailer seems indifferent to spiritual things. Today, we'd probably call him agnostic. And then the, for Lydia, the way she is saved is by Bible teaching. You know, the, the scriptures are open and she responds. Whereas the slave girl is saved through their deeds. You know, there's a, a supernatural encounter and exorcism Paul and the others serve her. They show her the power of God. And for the jailer, it's through the example of the lives of Paul and Silas in prison. God works in different people's lives in different ways through people like us to share the gospel so that they might respond to him. And Harbor City, I want to say to us, this is what all of us, whoever you are watching this today, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are called to be part of doing what Paul does here in your own way with the people around you. One more thing from these stories. This really stood out to me as I prepared. In Acts 16, we, we see just a really action-packed, interesting, exciting chapter. It's definitely worth reading if you haven't or haven't read it in a while. But Paul casts this demon out of the slave girl and sets her free. And where before she had this gift by the Spirit to fortune tell or predict the future, now she can't do it anymore. And her slave owners are furious because the money they were making off this girl it's no longer theirs. You know, they've lost a fortune. They've lost profit off of her by what Paul and Silas have done. So they have them thrown into jail. And there they meet this a Roman jailer who not only puts them in prison, but he puts them in the stocks in the worst part of the prison and they suffer. 
And this seems to be Paul's kind of ministry strategy. Goes to a new city, preaches the gospel, makes disciples. He gathers those disciples together in a new community called the church. And they, then he gets thrown in jail somewhere along the line. And Paul is writing this letter to the Philippians from jail. He's probably under house arrest in Rome in Acts 28. But here we read about another imprisonment in Acts 16.25, where it says about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Now think about that for a second. If you got arrested on mission, you were sharing about Jesus, you were on the streets, you were pointing people to him, and you got arrested and thrown into jail, what would you be doing? How would you respond to that? I don't think I would be praising God and singing hymns at midnight. I might be angry with God. I might be sleeping because I was tired from the day. I might be praying, but I'd probably be saying, how can you do this to me? You know, I'm serving you. Why is this the thanks I get for preaching your message, God? Like, what is going on? But Paul and Silas are praising God. And this is a huge example for us because Paul is going to encourage us all the way through the book of Philippians to be joyful in every occasion. But here we see it. He is able to rejoice in the Lord always, even in prison, in the stocks, in midnight, for preaching the gospel. And you can't really argue with someone who practices what they preach. Paul shows us that if our joy is in Jesus, then no matter what gets taken away from us, our joy cannot. Jesus cannot be taken from us. So our joy cannot be taken from us. Even in prison, even when we suffer, even when things don't go the way we want them to go. At the end of Acts 16, Paul and Silas stopped by Lydia's house again. And it says this in verse 40. After leaving the jail, they came to Lydia's house where they saw and encouraged the brothers and sisters and departed. Now don't miss this. You know, before this journey to Philippi, when they were trying to get into Asia, there were no Christians in Philippi. But now Paul and Silas are able to go to Lydia's house and meet with the core group of this first church plant in Europe and these new brothers and sisters in Christ. And among them would have been Lydia and the slave girl and that Roman jailer and his family, their household. They're all together along with kind of the new disciples who've been added to the mix. And I just want you to remember how different all of them are. This is a really diverse group of people. This is, this is not what comes to mind when I think about church planting in Europe. But there they are in this home together worshiping and praising God, studying the scriptures, doing communion, encouraging one another as family. You know, before these people had met Jesus, that they would never be together. I mean, from a class point of view, from a background point of view, just from a where they lived in the city point of view, they would never get together like this. But now in Jesus, they've been changed and they are brothers and sisters in the family of God. They've been united by the blood of Jesus. And we see the truth of the gospel here that in Christ, people from all types of backgrounds are united as brothers and sisters in the new family of the church of Christ. Isn't that amazing? Bit of context here, which I think changes the way we see Acts 16 completely, is that in the ancient Jewish prayer book, the Siddur, it tells us that a Jewish man would pray this prayer every morning. Lord, I thank you that I'm not a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. A woman, a slave, or a Gentile. Now, if you think about Acts 16, those are the three people we've encountered. A woman, a slave, and a Gentile. The first converts in Europe were outsiders. People who would have been looked down on by the people of God and probably rejected or kept away. Now Jesus is drawing all people everywhere to himself in the church that he's building, regardless of their background and regardless of their social position. The gospel is for everyone. In Galatians 3.28, Paul writes to another church, There is neither Jew nor Greek, 
There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Harvest City, friends, people watching this today, we are all made in the image of God. No, no matter who you are, what your background is, you are made in the image of God and you have value. You know, whether you are rich, middle class or poor, whatever race you are from, whatever ethnicity you are from, wherever you are born, whether you are young, middle-aged or old, whether you are conservative or liberal, religious or irreligious, whether you are white collar or blue collar, educated or uneducated or whatever you think might separate you from others, we are all made in the image of God and that unites us. The other thing we see here is that no matter how different we are, we all have one problem and that is sin. And at the same time, there is one hope for our salvation and that is Jesus. You see that with Lydia, the slave girl, and this Roman jailer, all having their sin dealt with and new hope and new life found inside of Jesus. So no matter who you are, no matter what your story is today, if you this morning are to repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus and begin to follow him, you will be saved and you are welcomed into the new family of the church. Paul loved the church in Philippi. He loved these people. As he's writing this letter, I'm sure he's got Lydia, the slave girl, the, that Roman jailer, his family, the, the new members of the church, all in mind. We see this in Philippians 1. I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer. They're on his mind all the time. Verse 7, indeed, it is right for me to think this way about all of you because I have you in my heart. Paul loved this church. Verse 8, for God is my witness how I yearn for you all, not just some of them. I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Well, that's crazy. We know how much Jesus loves us. But here Paul is saying that he yearns for this church with the same love that Jesus has for them. He has for them too. He misses them and he yearns to be with them. Now, I think a lot of us feel that way at the moment, to be honest. You know, I don't know if it's cool to say that we yearn for one another, but Paul said it, so I'll say it too. We miss being together. We, we miss seeing one another. We miss worshiping together. So I sent out that church questionnaire this last week that I'd love to encourage all of you to do. So many of you said you miss one another, being together, worshiping together on Sundays, having a coffee and catching up. And I get that. These are the things we took for granted before 2020 hit. But Paul is writing from prison, separated from the church of Philippi, these people that he loves. They're on his mind. He's praying for them all the time. And he yearns. He has this intense longing or desire to be with them and to see them. Again, I can relate to that. I I know many of you can too. Harbor City, I, I yearn for you. I yearn to be with you, to be in person, to worship with you again. Watching myself preach on Sundays on the screen is the pits, you guys. I'm sorry you have to watch me and listen to my voice every week. Because church on a screen is not church, you know, it's better than nothing, it's better than not doing anything for six months, but this is not church. Um, Church is not an event you attend, church is not something you watch, It's, it's not like the spiritual product that you consume and then carry on with our lives. Church is not just something we go to, the church is the gathered people of God, it's the bride of Christ, it's the family of God together on mission, it's brothers and sisters meeting in one place. And this year, none of us thought this would be the way we would do church or that we'd have six months apart or seeing each other on Zoom or YouTube, whatever it is. But as Paul says, I I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Harbor City, even in the midst of this, what's going on this year, God is at work. And I trust that none of us will ever take for granted again the privilege of being able to meet together around a table or in a lounge or in a school or in a church building 
to be the people of God in one place, worshiping, praying, learning, studying the Bible, taking communion, hugging, drinking coffee. I hope that we will remember and cherish how important that is. Let me end with this. What does this letter have to say to us today? Well, one of the things I love about the letter to the church in Philippi is that they're a healthy church and Paul is writing mainly to encourage them. You know, the, the book or the letter to the church in Corinth is a challenge. You know, Paul is addressing a lot. He's challenging. He's adjusting. He's rebuking. He's correcting. There's a lot of sin that comes to the surface because that church is a mess. But the church in Philippi is pretty healthy and Paul is writing to encourage them as he speaks. And I think there's a lot that you and I can be encouraged by from this letter. Firstly, Paul writes to thank them for their financial support and partnership in the gospel. We see that in chapter 4, verse 10 to 20, a guy named Epaphroditus has come to Paul and has brought a gift, a financial gift from the church in Philippi to help him as he goes and does his ministry. And he writes back to thank them for this. I think that's a big deal. You know, Harbor City, please can we be an encouraging, grateful and appreciative church that freely thanks everyone on every occasion. You know, Paul could have felt entitled, you know, thinking, well, you know, of course they're going to give me a financial gift. Like I planted the church. I shared about Jesus with them. None of them would know God or be in the church or, or have eternal life or be saved from their sins if it wasn't for me. Of course, they should pray for me and partner with me financially. Of course, Epaphroditus should come and give me a gift. Paul is not entitled and we shouldn't be entitled either. When Epaphroditus comes, he is grateful for their help and he writes to thank them and let them know how much he appreciates them. Secondly, Paul writes to, uh, writes to them to encourage them to persevere and endure in the trials that they're facing. And this is so relevant for us in 2020 today. I know many of you, this has been a good year, but I know many of you have dealt with stress and loneliness and cabin fever and work pressures and uncertainty and change. And here Paul writes to encourage us in the midst of these challenges to endure and persevere and that God is good even in the pain that we deal with. Thirdly, this is an epistle of joy. Joy is mentioned in some way about 16 times in this letter. In chapter 1 verse 4, Paul writes to the Philippians and tells them that he prays with joy. Later on, he says that he, he rejoices that the gospel is preached. In chapter 2, he rejoices with them and asks them to rejoice in him. And then in chapter 4, we see this contagious joy radiating from Paul, who again, remember, he's writing from a Roman prison. And he says to them, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. In every circumstance, in every situation, rejoice in the Lord. You know, he doesn't say, look at my situation and my success. He doesn't say, look at my home, look at my spouse, look at my kids, look at my dog, look at the things that I have or the things that I've done. He doesn't do any of that. He says, look at my Jesus. Let's look at Jesus together and rejoice in him. Fourthly, this isn't just an epistle or a letter of joy. It's also a letter about mission in the midst of hardship. And Paul's overarching concern in this letter is the gospel. Uh, the word gospel actually appears in the book of Philippians more than in any other letter per hundred words. Pound for pound, this is the most gospel-focused letter in the entire Bible. And in the midst of the opposition this church is facing, Paul is saying to them, okay guys, it's very easy in the midst of this to look down and forget about what God has called you to to preach the gospel, to make disciples, to advance the kingdom of God, to see churches planted, to, to do all of these things, to pray, to partner together in the gospel. But he reminds them of this and he celebrates the way that they have partnered with him in the gospel in the past. From day one until now, he says, they've prayed with him. 
They've given financially to him. They've visited him in prison and they have proclaimed Jesus themselves to the people of Philippi and beyond. And he celebrates their partnership in the gospel. And lastly, Paul points them to Jesus. Chapter 2 and 3 are filled with the most beautiful passages exalting Christ and reminding us of how amazing he is. And Paul is being a good pastor here. He's lifting their heads to see their Savior, their Lord, and their example, Jesus. And he reminds them of his beauty and he calls them to treasure him above all other things. Harbor City, I know this has been a disorientating year. I know this has been a stressful year, confusing and challenging year. I, I know we've all faced many things and I'm grateful to God for many of you. This has still been a very, very good year. But as we go into this week, I want to remind you of a promise that Paul gives to the Philippians that is true for us in Jesus too. In verse 6, Paul says that despite their circumstances, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. What Jesus has begun in you, he will complete in you. And I hope that fills you with hope as we go into this week. God is at work in your life and in your situation. He is going to finish the things that he started in us. So let's take a moment to pray that promise and also the prayer points of Paul from verse 9 to 11. Lord, I ask you for each one of us in Harbour City this morning, firstly for encouragement deep in our hearts and souls, that what you've begun in our lives, you will take to completion and you will finish. I also pray, Lord, that our love will keep on growing in knowledge and in every kind of discernment. I pray that we may all understand what really matters so that we may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return and that we would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.